with us on this Sunday morning. Let's give it up for Pastor Tony. Thank you. <laughs> All right, the title of the sermon is Peter's Denial. It comes from Mark 14, 66 through 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Very dramatic. Thank you. First of all, um, I visited some churches. I was in Australia, and they were very impressed that you let me go. Um, so thank you. It was, a, it was a very refreshing. It was wonderful. Um, I went to Australia during February and um, met a lot of wonderful people. If you say your prayers and you do the right thing this side of heaven, you might end up in Sydney. It's a beautiful place. But it's great to be back. And um, you will notice that we are back in the Gospel of Mark. Why are we doing that? Well, last year we went through Mark. We've worked our way through the whole Gospel, the story of Jesus' life as told by Peter. And um, we got to uh, Christmas and switched our attention to Christmas and Jesus' birth. We're going back to Mark to finish off the Gospel because this is the part of the gospel that deals with Jesus' death. Um, this is the journey that Jesus takes to the cross, which we're going to uh, talk about at Easter. So we're finishing off the gospel of Mark to bring us to Easter. What is the gospel of Mark? Well, the Bible begins the New Testament with four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel means good news. It tells the story of Jesus from the perspective of the disciples what Jesus said, what he did, how he interacted with people. And we saw in Mark's gospel, remember this is based on what Peter remembers of Jesus, that the very center of the gospel, there are 16 chapters, in chapter 8, Peter confesses, acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the promised one. And with that, Jesus and the disciples leave Galilee and head south to Jerusalem, where Jesus is arrested. So where we pick it up here, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, has been dragged to the house of the high priest, and um, Peter has followed. So let's see what happens to Peter. Verse 66. 
While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. So this is the courtyard of the high priest. All the disciples scattered when Jesus was arrested, but Peter followed. He followed the guards. He followed them to the high priest's house. And Jesus, we saw at the um, beginning of the Christmas Advent season, is taken to the upper room of the high priest's house and is confronted by all the leaders of Israel. Well, Peter is down below in the courtyard. He is snuck, it's the middle of the night. He has snuck into the courtyard. Who knows what's in his head at this point, but he knows that his Lord is up there being confronted and accused. One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. You are with that Nazarene. We saw that when Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem, there were several confrontations in the temple where the high priest lived and worked. They caused a sensation. They must have been the talk of Jerusalem. And this uh, servant woman, uh, John says she's the head of the household of the high priest, must have thought about Jesus, talked about him, seen his followers, and almost certainly she has seen that Peter was one of the people in the temple with Jesus. That's how she recognizes him. When the servant girl saw him there in the entryway, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. So Peter has snuck into, into the courtyard of the high priest, and now he is recognized as an outsider. You know, these were people in Jerusalem, the, center, the capital, the center of things. They're all the city slickers, and Peter is a fisherman from up north in Galilee. Unpolished, uneducated, he would have had a different uh, accent, different language, different manner. He's beginning to stand out. He's beginning to be noticeable. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. I don't know this man. Peter won't even use Jesus' name let alone admit to being his disciple. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Earlier that night, um, Jesus, before he was arrested, before he went to Gethsemane, Jesus had the Last Supper with the disciples. And at that Last Supper, he made a prophecy. He made a prediction, and he told Peter about it. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, the disciples. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is a remarkable story. There are many 
remarkable things you can say about this story, but I want to highlight three. Peter got his name from Jesus. He was originally called Simon. And Peter called him Jesus. Uh, Jesus called Peter Peter because Peter is from the Greek word Petrus, which means rock. And Jesus said of Peter, you are the rock. Remember, um, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. You are the rock. Your faith is the rock on which I will build the church. And yet here, the very first test of Peter, the rock, the leader of the disciples, the foundation of the Christian church, the rock crumbles. All the disciples have run away. The rock has been revealed not to be strong, a foundation. And all the work that Jesus put for three years into teaching and training his disciples and preparing them to be leaders in the church has been apparently completely wasted. The human element of the church has failed. In fact, it fails at the beginning right here. If you look at church history, it has always failed. The history of the Christian church makes Game of Thrones look like Sesame Street. Now, that's a bit of hyperbole there, but you get my point. It is, the history of the church is not the record of good people. The history of the church is the record of weak people, people easily corrupted, people going their own way, people who are wayward. And think of the reputation of the church right now, the scandals of abuse and corruption, wrecking whole churches and denominations. The biggest problem with the Christian church has always been Christians. They are not a source of strength. They are weak, they are wayward, they are easily tempted, oftentimes corrupt, oftentimes hypocritical. If you love the Christian church, it's not because of Christians. The other thing that is remarkable about this passage is that, remember, this is Peter. He is alone. There's no other Christians there. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the, crows, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. That's pretty pathetic. I mean, what a humiliating failure he is revealed to be. And yet there's nobody there to witness this you know, apart from the, the people who work for the high priest. There's no Christians there. There's no disciples there. The only reason that we have this record, and it's in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only possible way that this story is in the Bible is because Peter told the disciples about this. He told fellow Christians that this is what happened. His greatest humiliation, his weakness, his failure... He thought there was a lesson here that was so important that the church had to hear it. And also think why this is happening at all. This is the first time that the disciples have been on their own. And what does Jesus do? He prophesies that Peter will deny him. He told Peter that this would happen. This was Jesus' last 
and final lesson to Peter. This is an important lesson. Jesus was not a cruel man, but he knew that this would cut Peter to the heart. He ensured that Peter would be humiliated, revealed, humbled, right at the very beginning of his ministry. Why did he do that? Because this is an important lesson for Peter, for the church, for us. So what is the lesson? Remember, this is right at the very beginning. Peter was an illiterate fisherman from the north of Israel. Where in the periphery of things, uneducated, not apparently a spiritual man, he was a fisherman. He was not chosen by Jesus to be a disciple because he was smart, or because he was impressive, or because he was beautiful and attractive. Nor because he was courageous, as this reveals, or competent, or charismatic. Why did Jesus choose him? Because of his faith. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Simon answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this has not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, Petrus, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades, uh, the land of the dead, the trash heap for all the foolish, corrupt, and evil thoughts of the human heart. Jesus is saying to Peter, your faith in me is the foundation of the church. Not your courage, not your performance, not what you do. Your faith in what I will do. And that's the foundation of the Christian church. And all the foolishness of the human heart, all the foolishness of Christians, all the weakness and corruption and waywardness is not going to destroy my church. That's what Jesus is saying. Why did Peter weep? Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times, and he broke down and wept. Why did he do weep alone in that courtyard? Because he realized two things simultaneously. First, at that moment, he realized that he'd fallen at the first challenge. He denied Jesus and was revealed as a coward and a failure. But also, simultaneously, at that moment, Peter realized that Jesus had always known that this would happen. He told him at the Last Supper. And yet Jesus had chosen Peter as his disciple, made him a brother, shared the Last Supper with him. Jesus had shown Peter that he loved him and would never abandon him. He knew who he was, he knew what he was capable of, and he still considered him his rock, his, his lead disciple, the one that would lead the disciples in uh, founding the Christian church. 
What Peter realized in those two moments, or those two elements of that moment, is the essence of the Christian gospel, the gospel of grace. The Christian gospel, remember, gospel means good news. The good news that God, through Jesus, is speaking to his church, speaking to each of us, is that even as we are revealed... Even as all the things that are wrong in our life are revealed, simultaneously, in that revelation, God's love for us is revealed. There is this downstroke. Uh, it's the reason that, you know, Steve, Steve pointed out, uh, confession and repentance is at the center of the church. There is a downstroke where we examine and recognize who we really are. All the pain, all the suffering, all the doubt and despair in our lives, our failures, our weaknesses, our flaws, all the ways that we have hurt ourselves and the people around us. When you recognize that, and it's a brutal thing to recognize, by the way, to see that about yourself, to acknowledge that about yourself, and most people spend most of their lives ignoring all that stuff, but when that is revealed in you, simultaneously, if you're a Christian, you recognize that God knows that already. That God always knew that. And that God, despite that, has chosen to love you and forgive you and draw you in and make you part of his family. That's why Jesus came into the world. Not to teach us primarily, but to save us, to rescue us, to restore us, to redeem us. And so the Christian gospel has these two elements recognition of our need and in that need a recognition or a glimpse or a revelation of just how deep God's love for us is that he would put up with what is essentially human filth and replace it with love. That's the Christian gospel. That's why it's good news. Philip Yancey wrote a wonderful book, which I highly recommend, What is So Amazing About Grace? And it is all about this central idea of the gospel. And he writes, Grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more, and nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I, even I, who deserve the opposite, am invited to take my place at the table in God's family. The gospel is that no matter what you have done and no matter what you will do and no matter who you are, through Christ, God gives you a place at his table. And it's your place. It has your name on it. And it will be held open for as long as it takes. That's the gospel. And you see this throughout the Bible. You see it here with Peter. You see it with Paul, the other great apostle in the New Testament. This is uh, Paul writing to the church in Corinth. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. We don't know what uh, Paul's thorn was. Uh, 
in his letter to the Galatian church when he is ill and they take care of him, he does say that if they could have, they would have given him their own eyes. So perhaps he had some problem with his sight or with his eyes. We don't really know. We do know that he prayed and pleaded for the Lord to restore, and the Lord did not. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is revealed in human weakness, just as it was revealed to Peter as he wept in that courtyard, just as it was revealed to Paul. Paul was uh, encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, and he recognized who, who he was. He had hated Christians. He had persecuted and tortured them, and yet he was forgiven. And all his anger against the church was turned into this passion for Christ, for Christians, for planting churches. He was the greatest church planter in history. My power is made perfect in weakness. That is, God's power is revealed, shows up, is present when human beings are weak, where they can't get it done. If you are strong, if you are competent, if you are in control of your life, you don't need God, and he won't be there. God shows up in human weakness. God will show up in your weakness and in my weakness. So here's a question. Some of you are waiting for God to show up. You're expecting some kind of mountaintop experience, some kind of revelation, some kind of nirvana or bliss. Some sign that God loves you, some sign that God is there. But God is only going to show up in your weakness. So here's the question. What have you ever tried in your life to do or get done? What obstacle or problem in your life or your relationships have you ever tried to overcome that demanded that God show up? What have you attempted that you knew you could not do without him? What in your life demands his presence, his power, his intervention? If you've never tried that, if you have never sought to do something that requires God to show up, then why would he show up? You don't need him. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. Paul was a monster. He was a Pharisee. He persecuted the, the early church. I told you, he tortured and killed Christians. And yet when he encountered Christ, that was transformed into one of the greatest um, ministries that has ever been in the Christian church. Paul planted churches all the way around the Mediterranean. Much of the, the New Testament is the letters that he wrote to the churches that he planted. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knew that Jesus wasn't going to show up. He, he just sat at home thinking happy thoughts. 
Jesus showed up the power of God was present when he went out into the world and he faced the problems of the world. He faced the opposition of the world, the challenges of the world. That's where God's power is revealed. Now, I'm not going to uh, compare myself to Paul, but I'm going to talk about me. Um, I hope you know that our 20-year anniversary is coming up soon, this year. I think this month, is that true? April, thank you. April, we're going to be celebrating our 20th anniversary. This church, Redeemer Hoboken, was started by some people who attended Redeemer Manhattan. They were part of small groups that met in Hoboken, and they decided they wanted to start worshiping in the evening on Sunday. Many of them attended church in the morning, and then they would um, they created a, a worship service and prayer service in the evening. We met, they met at St. Matthew's, and they began to collect people. In 2003, they asked me to leave Redeemer Manhattan and come to deepest, darkest New Jersey, face the dragons, and be their pastor. It did not seem like a good idea. I was, I'm only recently a Christian. I became a Christian at the age of 30. And my example of pastoring, of what it meant to, to be a preacher or pastor, was Tim Keller. His preaching converted me. And he, if you, perhaps you don't know this, but Redeemer grew to a church of several thousand people and is now a worldwide movement. So learning to be a pastor at Redeemer Manhattan was like learning to play the piano at Carnegie Hall. It was a place of excellence, and I was not excellent. I wasn't a good preacher. I'd only been a Christian a few years. I did not feel holy. I didn't feel good enough. I wasn't even sure if I could be a pastor. Those of you who know me know that I'm quite introverted, and pastors are meant to be gregarious, you know. And there was no money. There was, uh, there was only enough money to keep the lights on for a few months. And so I was very ambivalent about it, thought about it a lot. And... Um, Presumably it was God, but uh, a pastor showed up, an old pastor, Charlie Drew, and he took me aside, and I was telling him, gosh, you know, look at Tim Keller, and I can't do that, and I was going through the litany of problems, and he said, words to the effect, Tony, it's not your church. It's not your church. It's God's church. Tony, you are not being asked to be successful. You are being asked to be faithful. And that's it. And that was the basis. You're not being asked to be successful. You're not asked to be a hero. You're not being asked to be this great leader. You're being asked to stand up and be faithful and say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. That's it. And that is the basis of the Christian church. As I say, I'm not comparing myself to Paul or Peter, but I think this lesson, that it's not about you, it is about God, is the fundamental lesson that every Christian, every leader in the church needs to learn. You are not being asked to be successful in your Christian life. You are being asked to be faithful, and that is enough. 
You know, while I was away uh, in February, I thought a lot about this church. But every message that I got was that everything is running peachy, no problem. Everything is smooth. And uh, at my worst, I thought, oh, my God, I'm superfluous. They don't need me anymore. They're going to move on. They're going to find somebody shiny and new. I'll be the old guy on the trash heap. There's another way, though, of thinking. And this is how when I prayed, when I worshipped, I went to several churches. At my best, I rejoiced. The small seed of faith of that group of people who started this church, including my small commitment, has produced a great harvest. Look at us all. And that small group, that one-man show, has turned into a family of faith, a community of faith. This church doesn't need me. It doesn't need you because it doesn't belong to us. It exists because of faith in the one that it does belong to. And he has said that it's going to survive. Even the power of hell will not stand against the Christian church. That means no matter how badly we screw up, no matter how awful I turn out to be in my old age, this church will survive because it's not guaranteed by my holiness, my goodness, my performance. It's guaranteed by Christ and his spirit. And that is the foundation of this church. That is what we put our faith in. So why are you here today? This community of faith. Why have you come this Sunday morning? There are many visitors here this morning. Why are we all here? Because we recognize that we need what the church points to. There are many people in this room who are feeling wounded, wretched, alone, defeated, worthless, hopeless, lost, abandoned by friends, by family, by the world, stuck in their careers, stuck in difficult relationships. The world is hard. The world is broken. And yet you're here. Why? Because you've heard something, a rumor, a whisper, a still, small voice. And despite the wretchedness of Christians, you are coming to what they have faith into, to find the one that the church points to. Philip Yancey puts it this way. Religious faith, for all its problems, despite its maddening tendency to replicate, replicate ungrace, by that he means the complete opposite of the grace that Jesus revealed, despite its maddening tendency to replicate ungrace, lives on because we sense the numinous beauty of a gift undeserved that comes at unexpected moments from outside. Refusing to believe that our lives of guilt and shame lead to nothing but annihilation, we hope against hope for another place run by different rules. We grow, up, we grow up hungry for love and in ways so deep 
as to remain unexpressed, we long for our maker to love us. That's why we're here. Not because of the human beings in this room, but because of the one that calls us here. Because we have heard his gospel, the gospel that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are invited in, that we are called to his table, the family table, God's table. Peter saw it clearly that morning when he wept. And he was rewarded with the Holy Spirit. And he preached a sermon, the first sermon, Christian sermon, and 3,000 people became Christians. Paul saw and heard the gospel on the road to Damascus. And a Christian, Ananias, prayed for him, and the Holy Spirit transformed his life, and he planted more churches than anybody ever has, evangelized the Roman world. If you are baptized, then you have received the Holy Spirit. And if you have heard the gospel, if it has changed your heart, a changed heart, humbled, but also filled with God's love, plus the Holy Spirit, makes you a powerful force in the world. Makes you able to say, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, not my will, not my kingdom. And be about the business of our Lord. There's a final element. How is it possible for us to receive grace so freely? Yancey says this. Grace is free only because the giver himself has borne the cost. He's talking about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Remember... Peter down in the courtyard, weeping. Jesus up, being confronted by his accusers, about to be led to the cross. It is the cross that pays the price of all that ugliness that is forgiven. It is Christ who makes grace so free and so available. And it's what we will receive at this table. The body of Christ is the bread. The blood of Christ is the cup. If you come to his table, trusting in him, you receive all that freely, graciously, and it will change your life. That's why we come to church. That's the Christian gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we can scarcely imagine what it costs you on the cross to pay for each one of us. And yet you did. And each one of us is here because of that. Lord, help us humble ourselves this morning so we can receive your grace, your spirit, your love. Help us, Lord, to make you the very center of who we are, to make you the very center of our church. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.